First Peter, chapter three, verse eight to twelve. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good thing, good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. One of the distinctive things about Christianity is that it's meant to be for all people in all places and at all times. And what that means is、uh, Christianity takes different shape and forms depending on the context. There are certain things that you could be flexible about: how Christians dress, what style of music we sing. There's a certain adaptability, but there are certainly some things that are to be consistent throughout. So as we're looking at First Peter for the last month, we've been looking at a section of this New Testament letter. That's encouraging us to live honorably in the world and the various ways that the world is organized and structured, which will be different for different Christians. So、uh, Peter talks about how we engage、uh, the government as citizens and how we engage the workplace、uh, and how we engage family. But some Christians will live under a monarchy, some in a democracy, some in a dictatorship. What does it look like to live honorably in those contexts? Work relations. Some will be small business owners. Some will be middle management. Some will be slaves. What does it look like to live honorably there?、Uh, with marriage,、uh, some are coming together of two families that want to make an economic arrangement. Some find love at first sight at 3 a.m. at an East Village bar.、Uh, what does it look like to be honorable in your specific relationship? So, so Peter is not telling us how to organize society. In this context, he's saying societies organize, and we want to work within that for the good of these various relationships. And so, his application to us, what we've talked about in the last month, is to be honorable, to treat people with honor.、Um, but now, when we come to this section in verse eight, he says, "Finally," which doesn't signal the end of the letter. There's still two more chapters. It seems to be the end of this section that began with what we looked at four weeks ago. Uh, be subject to human institutions, and in that it then said, "Honor everyone, love the brethren, the family of God, fear God." And so, for the last four weeks, we've been looking at honoring everyone—the emperor, the governor, the husband, the wife, the boss—applying honor. But now he's saying, "Finally, now, now we're going out of the structures, <laughs>、uh, not the specific context you're in, but what's to mark." God's people, and so when He says, "Honor everyone, love the family of God," now the switch is not from living honorably, but to loving one another. 
and with a view to the Christian family, but also to how then Christians in that family relate to others in the world. So uh, what's consistent? There's a certain mindset, a certain heart, the heart and mind of Jesus that we have through our being renewed by him and being in relationship with him that changes how we relate to one another and in the organic relationships, uh, what we do. So verse 8 says, finally, all of you. So he's been talking to wives, he's been talking to servants, he's been talking to citizens, but now everyone, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humble mind. There's actually a little pattern in here, uh, not to squeeze this too far, but, but the first and the fifth of those seem to be connected to the mind, unity of mind and a humble mind. The second and fourth, sympathy, tender heart, seem to be the, the words that we use towards the heart, but the center, the third, brotherly love, familial love, that seems to be the point. And, and what do we need to have that kind of love uh, as if we're a family and not another institution? Well, we need uh, the mind, the heart of Jesus. And, and that's the possibility that, that Peter raises when he, when he talks about Christianity not as a new set of principles or a new set of rules or a new kind of culture, but he talks about a spiritual life at the beginning of the book. It's like being born again, not that we have a second chance at life, but like the life that we haven't had is now given to us, so we come alive. And then the question is, what is it like to have spiritual vitality? And, and the letter to Peter is helpful in that question because he's not giving a utopian picture. He's writing to people who are persecuted. So all throughout the letter, he's saying, this may go well, but it may not. You may suffer, people may oppose you. Um, but whatever the context, whatever the issue is, there's, there's the heart and the mind of Jesus that you are to have and to take with you and so in verse 10, uh, there's a little bit of an inception kind of dynamic here in that Peter is giving a little bit of a sermon on Psalm 34, and I'm giving the sermon on what Peter wrote, and you could go home and tell your friends and family uh, what I said, and it all traces back uh, to some kind of depth. But he, he takes it, verses 10 to 12 are from Psalm 34. Uh, Psalm 34 offers us wisdom. It's sort of the wisdom paradigm of the Bible. Uh, in Psalm 34, he's quoted as, whoever desires to love life and see good days... And that's this vision. What does it look like to love life, to see good days? And right there is where we find ourselves saying, how do we get caught up in hating our existence and, and being hostile? And, and everyone at, some, at points will be subject to that. And even a small community like ours at any period of time will have somebody hopeless in despair. But the last couple of years has, has leveled the playing field for a bit that more of us are feeling an emptiness, a lack of vitality, a sense of hopelessness, a lostness, and then the more extreme forms that are always present. And Peter is saying, you know, don't give up. There's a hope. There's a living hope. And he's not promising that life will be easy or that there's an instant fix, but he's saying, if God is working in you, and he's inviting us into that, then actually you can have a good life, not a perfect easy life, but, but you can see good days. And it's that vision that encourages us to go back into the world relating differently. And, and key to that is not simply what we're committed to doing, but, but gaining the heart and the mind of Jesus. His spirit in us is discipling us, changing us, uh, renewing us, turning our lives around. So it's that concept of a turnaround that I want to talk about today um, with, with uh, sort of three aspects, turning against, turning around, 
and turning towards. Those are just the headings. Um, but I'm going to begin with talking about turning against. Now, to introduce a, a, a fourth kind of turning, but not a heading, turning away is really where the Bible begins, with humanity turning away from God. That's assumed in this passage, a theology and understanding of humanity, that one of the problems is humanity has turned away from God. And our natural instinct is to say, what's the big deal? What do we need God for? Well, uh, God makes us, God gives us life, if you're willing to concede that these things come from God. But once we're living, do we actually need him? Or at that point, He's given us wisdom, he's giving, given us intelligence, agency, can't we just get on on our own? And the evidence against that is what happens when we turned away. So you read the story of Adam and Eve, when they turn away from God, what immediately happens is they turn against one another. So that's what I'm talking about, this turning against, where Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, uh, and this turning against grows to a greater extreme in Cain and Abel, the first children, where Cain turns against Abel with such hatred to kill him. And then it, it, it grows to society. So the next in Genesis is, is the story of Noah with this great violence in the world. Uh, the story of the Tower of Babel, what happens when human beings get close to one another and make technological advances. Think of all the good they can do, but think of how they're going to exponentially continue the harm and the violence. And so you read the story of the Bible, and there's a constant record of people turning against one another. The theological root of that is our turning from God. But um, for today, let's just, uh, I'll begin focusing on, on this reality where we turn against one another. Verse 8, um, where it's, it calls us to having a unity, uh, things that are contrary to the ways that we normally are, leads into verse 9, which says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. See, the golden rule is not do to others as others have done to you, because that just keeps the cycle going. Once somebody does something wrong once, and your paradigm is I do to people what they've done to us, then the spiral goes down. The reason that the golden rule is there is because you want to do for others as you would want them to do you, because the natural paradigm is repayment. And that works wonderfully. The kinder we are, the more generous. Uh, what an upbuilding way of life that is. But all it takes is the intrusion of one evil touch point. Whether it's evil in the extreme, like a genocide, or whether it's just the small evidence of uh, the cyberbullying. Wherever it comes and touches and pokes and wounds, it changes the direction, it changes our interactions, because we have a repayment mindset. So um, how do I treat others? And it's not always one-to-one, -one, but we often think of it that way. But, but sometimes the debt is so great that we wind up repaying others with the, the harm that's come to us. There's a downward spiral that's hard to stop and it's hard to get out of. And so this turning against one another is a real deep challenge for us. It works against this good life. The love of life that we could have um, goes away the more we turn against one another. Um, you know, one intrusion of, of offense or harm changes us because it's contrary to the ways that we're meant to relate by God's design. We're meant to bring good into others' lives and to take uh, some of their burdens. That's sort of a Christian picture. But it's a, it's a reversal because while we want that, while we do do that, there's also a normative way of relating, which is that we will take the good from others 
And sometimes we will bring harm into their lives. And we don't necessarily intend both of those, but in the repayment, there's often that exchange where maybe the goal is to harm somebody because I'm angry and vengeful. Maybe the goal is simply to take good from their lives because I'm a thief. But, but the two work together. So if I steal $5,000 from you, I've taken from you, but in the void of what I've taken, I've left the touch of harm. And people are different, but you may wind up with several weeks or several months of anger at the wrong. And so it's not simply that you have $5,000 removed, but you have anger now in its place, or resentment and uh, a lack of trust towards others. If this could happen to me, how do I trust these people or that person? And so if I punch you, I'm not taking something from you, I'm giving something harmful to you, well, I'm sort of taking away your comfort, but maybe I'm also taking away your confidence to go out into the world in safety and causing now a social anxiety. See, these exchanges that happen as we bring harm to others and take away the good, as we take away the good from others and inevitably bring harm, creates the kind of ways of relating that have a breakdown. We turn against one another sometimes self-protective, sometimes aggressively. And this is a problem. It's not the way that it's meant to be, and, and so there's a, a downward spiral. Um, as I was envisioning this, the visualization I have are these various collisions we have as we go through life, the various touch points of the, the person who was simply rude at the subway and the security guard who won't let us in the building because we forgot our, um, our wallet and then the coworker who's angry that we showed up late for the meeting and these, these series throughout the day of just these touch points that wind up just wearing us down until we wind up exploding inappropriately, sharing, uh, sharing the hostility in some way that we shouldn't. I was thinking of, of uh, car chases in movies. Now, I'm going to have to go to a movie because, to be honest, I, I don't have a lot of experience with car chases. So I'm not, I don't know how accurate this is, but as far as I can tell, one of the techniques you want if you're chasing someone in a car, to me, I wouldn't know what to do when I caught up with them. I might be tempted to try to pass them and then jam on the brakes, but realizing, yeah, their, their impact on me, that's probably not good. From what I could discern from hours of movie viewing is if you could get up next to them and sort of keep crashing to them from the side, that seems to be pretty good. That, that seems to happen a lot. Now, what, what, what are the outcomes of that? So that's far less dangerous than a head-on collision. I haven't done any hard statistics, but a wild guess, this is a wild guess, 85% of the time the car is going to flip over several times. That's going to be an outcome. I'm not sure that that's uh, statistically accurate, but there seems to be some, by going into the car, eventually some car flips over. But even if that doesn't happen, maybe a car crashes into another car or crashes into a pole, some harm can happen, but even if there's the, that, that little bit of collision and the person gets away, the car still has scratches and dents. You don't come out of that kind of interaction fine. You could die in it, you can uh, roll 50 times over, have the car explode, and miraculously walk away to have a fist fight. That could happen. Uh, but you could also uh, go straight forward and then just wind up dented. And, and now there it is, the, the damage is there. Those kinds of interactions, you know, one, one simple interaction, we're all different. The same kind of interaction could leave somebody flipped over and somebody just a bit scratched up and dented. We don't know how our interactions are going to go. But in this world, the, the more that we're committed to acting on our harmful instincts, acting out of pride, acting out of selfishness, there's a turning against 
that becomes problematic. Um, so, for example, when we think of how we do justice in the world, how do we make things right once wrong has been done? Um, which is the right goal. That's what we pursue. But once harm has been done, it's, it feels impossible to get back to normal. So, using my stealing $5,000 uh, so if somebody steals $5,000 from me, a, 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 a typical correct way for it to play out would be I call the police. The police do an investigation. They find the person. They arrest the person, hand them over to the courts. The courts have their uh, trial. The person is found guilty. I don't know how sentencing works, but let's say uh, for the sake of round numbers, the person gets sentenced to five years. So uh, you took $5,000 from me, and I'm angry and I want there to be some punishment to vindicate what you did, and there it is. I lost $5,000, you got five years, and we've made it right as much as we can as a society. Now, I don't know how the law should work, um, but I would imagine, I would want to ask a question to say, well, how much does it cost to imprison somebody for one year? Let's say the answer is $50,000. What might be more satisfying is, why don't you send them to prison for four years, and then give me $50,000. You know, I think at the end of that, I would feel like actually this worked out more fairly, that, uh, that, that now my having been a victim of thief is doing better than my Ethereum, and this person is being punished, and I'm angry about it, and it's a win for everyone. Um, I'm not proposing actual policy that that's how it should work. But I'm saying there's the absence of the mind that thinks, well, well, you've taken from me, and now you're suffering for it, but I still don't have $5,000, and I'm still angry, and now I'm still anxious and untrusting. And we've done the best we can to deal with the situation, but, but in this world, once there's harm, it's, it's really hard to make things right. And what happens is, as vulnerable human beings, the various touch points we have in this world, it's like a contagion that we pass around the mistreatment until it grows and festers. And, and the example that's often given in the Bible to remind us that, that the roots of our troubles go deeper than simply uh, you know, a few random actions or certain societies or certain peoples. And so what's often looked at in the New Testament is our language because it's so subtle. The, the mouth is kind of a gateway to the heart. You know, what we think and what we feel comes out through speech. Now, it also comes out through physical actions. And so if you get angry, you punch someone, but if you get angry, you could tell them off, or maybe uh, you're fearful of the situation, and so you restrain what you're saying and thinking. But, but there it is, it's there. And so the, the application here, uh, verse 10, uh, this is now quoting Psalm 34, let, let the one who wants a good life keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. There's something about our language that reveals our hearts, and so... If there's evil in our hearts, our lips will, will then express it. And we could say sticks and stones uh, may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. We say that because we're trying to tell the person who is hurt by the words that they might not take it so seriously. We're acknowledging, yeah, the, the, the words add up to hurt. And so, uh, so let him keep his tongue from evil. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Where did you hear that? What's in the Ten Commandments? Moses said it by the finger of God. But I say to you, if you call somebody a fool, you're liable to the fires of hell. Now, it's not that murdering and calling somebody a fool is the same thing, because murder is far worse than insult. What Jesus is saying is, but where is this coming from? Because there's a similar seed that gets planted, 
And if it starts to grow, it may express itself in the early stages with the insult. But when it gets out of hand, it starts to express itself in more severe ways. Jesus is not um, simply saying that, that murder is not as bad as it should be. That's the problem. Um, we tend to see ourselves in comparison to others. And so as long as there's a murderer and I haven't killed somebody, I feel okay even though no one's perfect. And Jesus is saying, well, it's not just that nobody's perfect, but, um, but the imperfections shape how we live and how we organize. And therefore, we don't just write it off to say it's okay to call someone a jerk, but, but to wonder why would I do that? What pride, what pain, uh, what, what agenda would cause me to do that? To recognize that actually there's something in my heart and mind where I'm not able to, to process all that I'm taking in and, and deal with it in a way that's returning something better. I'm getting pulled down, I'm getting caught in. And so the wisdom here is to, uh, to have a, a turnaround because we typically are turned against one another. And, you know, this week, as you find yourself thinking, you know, what is the evidence that I really need the things that Christianity offers? Grace, forgiveness, uh, strength. And just watch what you say or what you're tempted to say. And it shows that there are, there are wounds in us. There's pride. There are these various things at work in all of us that that if we allow them to grow and fester, we'll take over our lives until we, until we can't restrain them anymore. And what we need is, is something inside. And so look at, look at the interactions you have, the unproductive arguing. Arguing is not a problem. We live in a world where there's differences and wrong happens, and, and an argument can be a way of making it right. But it's the unproductive argument uh, we have where we take all of the wounds in that specific relationship, or frankly, any other relationship that's impacted us. And we find that, that there's never a linear, here's the issue that we're talking about, but bundled in is here's my little chance to poke, and here's my little chance to bring in this other thing. And um, we're stuck, turned against one another. And there's something about looking at our hearts and recognizing what's motivating it that allows us to then enter into those conflicts, those relationships, to say, I'm not going to act in pride, I'm not going to act in folly, I'm not going to do to you what somebody else did to me, or am I going to repay you evil for the evil that you've done to me? But I'm going to seek peace and pursue it. Um, practice that in your conversations, <laughs> because if you're allowing them to get out of hand, you're, you're on a trajectory towards the next um, escalation. So we turn against one another. What I want to move to now is, is turning around, because that's what we're called to. Uh, the situation we inherit is, is that breakdown where we're against one another, but the, the situation Peter invites us to is an invitation to change, a deep turnaround. And so in verse 11, there's a turning away. Let him turn away from evil and do good. That's the person that wants a good life needs to turn away from evil. And that's the thing is there's a trajectory. So Jesus is saying the trajectory of calling somebody a fool is you're on the line towards that maturing into murder. So you need to turn away. There's a, a turning around. And so Jesus also says the, the way to life is like a narrow road, that the, the way of destruction is wide. And if you think about your life, you've got 360 degrees. There's lots of options, lots of choices you can make in which direction you'll go. But if you're heading 45 degrees and you're lost and then you change by 20 degrees, you could still be going down the wrong road. 
Jesus' invitation is, is to a particular path. He says, I will lead you on it. Trust me. Follow me. I will walk you on a path, uh, and it's not easy. It's a bit narrow, but do you want good life? Do you want good days? Well, then you need to turn away from evil. And see, the background is you've already turned away from God who is good, and now it doesn't matter what direction you're going. If you're going some way away from God, then there's going to be a continued turning against and a, and a giving up and a forfeiting of this goodness uh, and there's going to be a repaying and a repaying until you're overwhelmed with the debt of sin. And so Jesus says, turn away, uh, turn towards me, follow me. Um, and so uh, in verse 12, we, we get this picture of the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's the concerning thing when we find out through our words that actually uh, evil is, has impacted me. It's at work. It's operating. Maybe at a socially acceptable scale or by my own view of morality. Yes, I'd like to be a better person. But this idea of the fear of God because his face might be against me keeps us from wanting to turn towards God. So we turn towards morality. If I could just get my life together, then maybe I'll be ready to turn back towards God. Or we turn towards uh, some kind of aesthetic way of life that if I could just have pleasure in whatever the, the case is so I'm not overwhelmed by this. And we're avoiding uh, what the solution is. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. The Lord will hear you. He will look with favor on you. But we're afraid, or we're stubborn, or we're proud, or we're just caught up. And so we turn from one evil to another evil. And what we're told is turn away towards what's good. It's a, it's a turnaround. That's the Christian concept of repentance. Is, is having turned away from God, however we visualize it, return. That's the invitation of Jesus. Return. Come home. Come back. You know, when, when you think of this concept of, of repayment and the problem that we, we take the problems that people have invested in us and the emptiness because of the good people have taken from us, and we wind up repaying evil for evil. We revile those who revile. It's contrary to the way of God, and we know this not simply in the origins of how God made us and what he purposes us for, but in the very means God uses to call us back, to call us to return. And so Jesus comes into the world, uh, and these very descriptions that are applied to us have been applied to him already in 1 Peter. I'll read a a portion in a moment. Uh, But keep in mind that he comes to face hostility. He comes as the righteous one, and yet we're heaping our evil upon him. What is the nature of Jesus' humiliation, suffering, death on the cross? The Christian understanding, the Christian explanation is he's taking evil from you in order to bring good into you. And it's that turnaround that we're all taking good out of each other because we need it, and we're leaving them empty or harmed. But Jesus comes to bear our sins. He comes to go to the cross that our hostilities, the anger, the evil that we're repaying each other endlessly are extinguished. It's put out. There's an end of the downward spiral. There's a bottom. It doesn't get worse than crucifying and humiliating and mocking the righteous one. But what we're told is this is the way of God to call you home, to call you to return. Stop repaying the evil, but look at the one who paid your debt. Uh, look at the one as you're trying to, to heap up enough good deeds and morality so that you could turn to God without fearing that his face is against you. And what we're told is his face 
turned away um, from the sun as the darkness came upon it. In order that uh, in Christ we would have his righteousness because he would bear our sin. It's this connection with God that finally transforms, turns things around. It's utterly unique and hard to grasp, but, but changes the cycle. Finally, there's somebody who's taking the evil, the harm, the wounds from us and pouring good into us. It creates the possibility of new life, a new community, a new way of living. And that's the nature of grace. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He takes what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. So now we're sent back into the world to say that your view of the world should change. So when people pay you with evil, don't, don't trade in their currency. Uh, but take what God has poured into your life and, and don't let go of it. Pursue what's good. And so in 1 Peter 2, we looked at this some weeks ago. Speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. And it's that healing that's important to us. Because what we're doing is we're, we're trying the best as we can to be upright and to restrain the evil that, that is coming out of our wounds. And Jesus is saying that's noble, but it's not going to work. Um, what you need is healing. And so the Christian dynamic is not a pep talk to go out and give a good life, live a good life. It's, a, it's an invitation to come to the one who did live a good life. And the evidence of it is when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Um, Jesus, who was righteous, was not treated as a righteous person, but remained righteous. And, and one of the things that, that shows the heart and the mind of Jesus, you can look at lots of details. One of the things that's always struck me, while he's being crucified by the Roman soldiers, he prays for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He intercedes on behalf of the ignorance, the ignorant. You know, the word forgive, at least in English, has give in it. This is one of the reasons we have a trouble forgiving because we're giving to somebody who has taken from us. It feels wrong. And yet, what we're told is that unless we're willing to do that, the feeling of wrong is just going to continue to fester. Um, Christianity says, if you want to know the heart of God, where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, God gives to us. Well, that's nice. Look at all the things that God has. Well, God doesn't just give to us out of his riches. In giving his son to suffer for us, um, he gives us not simply what we don't deserve, but, but he gives us at cost. Forgiving us is not easy. It involves suffering. It involves pain. What we're told is the pain of our wounds will be healed because of the grace that God gives to us. And it's that dynamic that we reflect on. So if you're not Christian, understanding what Jesus did on the cross is hard because it's so different from how we think, how we've been shaped, how our world functions. But, but keep studying, keep praying, keep seeking, seeking and understand. If you want to know what God is like, the heart and the mind of God, look at Jesus and you will find that not only is it different from what you could fathom or what you would come up with, but it's so much more marvelous.
And for those of you who are Christian, you know, it's easy to, to quickly get to this focal point because we know that, that the cross is, is such a central place. But it's hard in the woundedness of our lives to, to stay there long enough for healing. Uh, you know, uh, I say this with full conviction this is true, but I also say it as somebody who struggles to do it. I find in the preparation for a sermon it's so crystal clear that in the weeks of being in a miserable mood, I know to do this, but it, it's the hard work of returning in prayer. It's not easy, but you know, what we want is the easy, quick fix, and so when you're working on a project and all of a sudden it starts to get hard, the instinct to check your phone is there, because checking the phone, there's just something, I don't know what it is about the phone, it's bright, it's stimulating, it's distracting, there's something that gives a little boost to get us out of it. We're starting to sink a little bit, this brings us back up, and then we go back to it. Um, Jesus is, is addressing things so deep that the 10 minutes in your phone is not going to make your life better. And so there, there are deep wounds that we're trying to, to cover up. And what happens is the more we're covering them, the more what's coming out is our, is our wounding nature. That there's a discipline to the Christian life to say, you know what, this isn't quick, it isn't easy, but, but God is good. If Jesus really suffered on my behalf, I, I could go to him. And I recently, in a bout of insomnia, found myself picking Henry Nouwen's book off the shelf. <laughs> And he talks about the loneliness that we want to quickly solve, but, but maybe is a more normal part of humanity, which is, is there's no one person that, that can treat us so well and could be so kind and could fulfill all things. There's something that, that's going to require that we always go back to the one healer, uh, the one who was wounded for us, the, the one who loved us like nobody else would love us, but we don't see him, we don't hear his voice, and so we go for the quick fix. There's a discipline in the Christian life to say we need more than a pep talk to go back and try again. We need a kind of healing that only God could give, but that's the Christian message. It's new birth. It's regeneration. It's not a second chance. It's, it's a life that you haven't had that's given to you. And what we're told is you're going to go into the world that's keep demanding more of you than you're able to give. But God gives more grace. The one who poured his spirit into you will give you the strength so that you can live differently in the world but you're going to need to keep turning around. <laughs> Turn from evil. Don't get pulled in by it, but pursue good. And, and the path Jesus lays before us, he comes to offer the invitation, follow me. There's a constant returning in the Christian life. Sometimes it's quick. The thing you're going to say in that moment, you turn. Sometimes it's a couple of weeks or months of praying, Lord, why is this hard? Help me. Um, but the testimony of the church is God shows up. And sometimes it takes far longer than we want. But the confidence, the, the testimony is the Lord is our healer. He's unique in that. And so turn away from whatever we're medicating ourselves with and return to the one who invites you. And so that leads me to the, to the last portion. Because in verse 12 it says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He, his ears are open to their prayer. Wait a second, I'm a sinner. <laughs> not in Christ. That's the thing is we're forgiven. We come in relationship to God, not me out here. Can I be next and chosen for the Christian team? I'm in Christ who came to me. Now you hear my prayer because he's the righteous one who heals and forgives. And so to know that we're seen, that we're heard by God is what, what allows us to, to turn around towards him. But then to go back to the world, here's the third thing, to turn towards others. So we turn against others, the turnaround with God 
sends us out into the world that we could turn towards others, those who need, those who we love, but even those who would repay us with some kind of evil. And Peter is saying, don't get pulled in, turn from evil, do good. And so there's a contrarian way of life, verse nine, don't revile, don't get pulled in on evil, on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that's the calling of the Christian, is to be someone who has received such blessing that you go out to, to bring it where it's desperately needed but not deserved or appreciated. And so the Christian life is not about stopping. Stopping is a form of death. <laughs> That's when we're so overwhelmed by our guilt and our sin that we give up and everything breaks down. It's a call back. It's, it's from, from, from an energy that's burning you out to an energy that's causing you to grow. So it's not that you turn from evil and don't do anything. The Christian life, the goal is not to not sin. The goal is to do good. Sometimes the best we could do is not sin, exercise restraint. But we always have a view to something better. I need to stop here, but that stop should be a turnaround. How do I get back on track? How do I become one who blesses? And so the opening of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, is this decline of, of turning against one another from one couple to one family, to one community, to one nation, to the globe. And then in Genesis 12, there's an insertion of a different way, God's promise, the call of Abraham. And what's the very first words of, of this plan that were signaled as readers, now follow this guy and his descendants. What descendants? He doesn't have any. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be this impossible story. But uh, Genesis 12 opens up with, the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. You don't have to do it. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's plan is to bring blessing to everyone in the heavens and the earth. He's going to do it through the descendant of Abraham who becomes Jesus. That's how the story climaxes. But that call, I will bless you so that your place in this world would be that you would bless others. That's the trajectory. Me into you, you into the world. Not you turning against one another and killing each other. And so as Jesus bears the curse for us and brings the blessing to us, the calling of the Christian is to receive God's good favor and so if the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, we use the words of Moses at the end of our service to announce that the face of God will shine upon God's people as they are assembled in his presence, as they're turning towards him to worship, to look to him. It's a different way of life. And so uh, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. <laughs> Abraham was called to receive God's blessing and to bless. Now he's saying, and you were called to God's blessing. So, verse 11, seek peace and pursue it. You know, we burn out, we run out of energy, we just want to exist, we want to get through the day, we want to get through the week, we want to get through life and hope that we could be as unscathed as possible. And what we're told is, if you want a full life, if you want a good life, it could be so much better. And so it's not going to be easy, there's no magic quick fix, but, but there's a healing when you turn to God. There's a a life that's given to you. And then when you seek peace, when you pursue it, um, it brings about change. And so you need to be one who forgives. But in an argument, 
forgiveness is essential, but it's not the only aspect of seeking peace. There's also speaking the truth. There's also coming up with practical situations. There's also acknowledging things. But forgiveness is the one thing that we never want to bring. So we're told to seek peace. Forgiveness doesn't come on its own, but it comes with a lifestyle where we're pursuing what's good. And so um, try to practice this, this, this week. Verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, if you want more of that, Follow Jesus who's going to disciple you. He's going to shape you. He's going to heal you. He's going to remold you so that you have his mind and his heart. There should be a unity of mind. There should be a sympathy, a tender heart. There should be a a familial love that marks his people. And so um, here are two things. One is um, watch how you speak to one another. Your classmates, your coworkers, whoever you live with. Um, the people especially that's easiest, that you know that you could get away with just unleashing your hostility in some form, you could easily poke at. This week, watch for when you do it, and practice turning, saying, you know what, I'm going to pray for the one who I feel like has persecuted me, because that's, that's the issue, is, is this turning against uh, often happens in two people who really aren't against one another. There's a misunderstanding, there's a slight... But as soon as we turn against one another as enemies, that it's impossible to fix. Don't turn against people, but, but turn towards God. And practice this week, what do I do when I, when I want to poke someone, um, when I'm angry but don't feel like I, want, I can say anything? What does it look like to, to re-engage that situation so I can speak something true and good that I could come with my heart and mind, shaped by Jesus? How can that create the possibility for something different? Um, and uh, you can do that with strangers. You can do that with uh, uh, anyone. But as a church, we're meant to be practicing this. Um, we honor everyone. But there's to be a love in the family of God. And if you look at how the church has gotten caught up in the social and national conversations, we are not honoring one another. We are not blessing each other, uh, but we are quickly turning against one another, and we are seeking to distance ourselves, to humiliate, to shame, and the, the world is supposed to know the truth of the gospel by our love for one another, and we're putting on display that we have not gone out to the world filled with God's blessing, but the world has come into the church until we've turned against one another, and so there's not a conformity in the Christian life that I need to be like you and you need to be like me like we're creating a cult. The point is I need to be like Christ and you need to be like Christ. And it's, it's looking at him and understanding what is the heart and mind of God. And when we have that, and I'm doing that work and you're doing that work and we're encouraging each other in that work, then that familial love really enables us to, to be a people who have God's blessing with us and to go out into the world even if we're hurting and wounded, to have something that we can give because we believe that God is pouring into us and he's placed us in a community where we're pouring into one another and encouraging one another. That's the possibility. That's what we need to do. Let's be careful not to turn against one another. Let's have a unity of mind, not because we're pretending we agree, not because we're pretending that things don't go wrong, but because we're seeking peace. And when we have the heart and mind of Jesus and we don't revile but we speak the truth. We don't humiliate, but we forgive. Um, 
things can turn around. The blessing of God can grow out of the church so that the world sees a better way. We can be part of that. I want to encourage you. Come along with us as we do it. Let me pray. Our Father, um, every one of us has been wounded. Every one of us comes at some pain, some humiliation, some aggravation, some resentment. It could be small, it could be great, but it's shaping us, it's at work. Lord, we know that uh, as much as we want a quick and an easy way out, um, if Jesus went to the cross, the, the solution can't be quick and easy. If it cost the Son of God his life, his reputation for a time, Lord, give us the grace and the patience to really do the work to, to understand how your ways are different, to think differently. Not to assume that you are like us or the people we interact with, but, but to see who you are as you've shown yourself in Jesus Christ and to have that reframe how we understand the world and how we relate in it. Lord, it's a work of your spirit, so we appeal for it. Be generous to us as you promise. Be gracious and be patient. Heal us. Strengthen us. We pray that Emmanuel would be a community safeguarded against the petty hostilities that destroy um, and to be a community of forgiveness and truth and grace. We pray that as we seek your blessing for us, it would not be selfishly, it would not be desperately, but it would be in a way that we're healed so we can be a, a, a light in our neighborhood, a blessing to those whom we live with and work with and relate to. We'll do that work this week. Help us to look at our hearts and our minds and to speak words that build up and to turn from the temptation to tear down. And Lord, uh, where we get it wrong, encourage and help us, we pray. Be patient. We pray this in Jesus' name, who is our righteousness. Amen.